Welcome to the Mind Body Business Podcast. Have you ever considered your superpower? If you had one gift to leave with humanity, what would that be? We believe that everyone possesses a superpower. This is your value proposition, your je ne sais quoi to help make a tangible difference in the world. Each week, our show explores these superpowers with tantalizing thought seeds germinating only from the power of collective thought. We invite you to join us for one hour each week and listen in as we dispense superpower knowledge from great people doing greater things. Well, 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 welcome back. Welcome to the Mind Body Business Podcast. I'm Devo. On the other side of the country is my partner in crime, Lisa. Welcome. Thank you. So we're dealing with a little bit of a feedback today on the audio. I'm not sure why our wonderful friends over at Spectrum have been troubleshooting and have not come up with any answers to date. I'm kind of happy that it's you for a change, having a problem with your sound or with your internet connection. Yeah, so I started this new VPN connection so that our wonderful friends at the US government cannot spy on me anymore. And I think that might be interfering with it a little bit. But I would like to give a shout out to ExpressVPN for hooking me up with this new fantastic VPN so that I can go AWOL whenever, wherever, however I like. Thank you, ExpressVPN. Ooh, are, is that a paid sponsor? Yeah, you didn't know. We're now picked we up. We have by no paid sponsors. So. <laughs> Let's just pretend. Also, I cannot hear ringing, so it might just be in your ears. Sounds right, perfectly fine. fine. That's great. So today's podcast, we have a guest, and we haven't had a guest on for a couple of weeks because we took a few weeks off to catch up on the production side. We have a, a a guy named Nick Egan, who I was walking around Charlotte yesterday, and I just was going up to random strangers, saying, asking if they wanted to be on a podcast. Finally, I got the sixth one I asked said yes, and so he'll be on the show today. So, okay, wait, 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 wait. Let me let me just backstory that a little bit. You've been fangirling over Nick for ages, and whenever I see you, you're always carrying his book around. You're like, oh, I've read it five times. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Don't give him. Don't say that it's too little, loud. It's a little it much. He, no, don't say Do that. Recite things from the Oracle. Yeah, don't give him a big head. I need to keep the upper edge on the podcast as the moderator here. So we don't want him coming on thinking that okay, you know, it's all big and famous. Got to keep him humble. All right, but all joking aside, five so, times. Uh, a little bit of a little bit of background on Nick in a minute. Um, the centerpiece of our conversation today, if there will be one, is around an, a concept of sustainable growth. And this comes from Nick's book, which is called Shift and the art of transforming limitations which centers around among a variety of different topics but centers around the ability for us to shift our internal mindset on any modality in our lives whether it be our relationships our careers our personal or professional lives yours and my relationship our podcasts conflicts conflagrations you name it anything that causes causes a reaction to us if we can learn to shift our internal mindset we're able to re reframe whatever that juxtaposition is and have a more centered and mindful response to it as opposed to just overreacting or mindlessly reacting, et cetera. And okay, so, sounds like we don't need Nick now. You figured it all out. Yeah, right. Well, I have to keep reading the book. So the next time we talk, it'll be four or five more times. So um, I, before we bring Nick in, I wanted to have a conversation with you for a few minutes because this has been, we haven't put it in those eloquent of words that, that Nick does in his book, but you know, for the last several years, you and I have really been talking about this in our workshops, in our online classroom, and any of the stuff that we're doing as business leaders, how we can reframe 
the context of how we perceive things so that we can have a better, more, more opportunistic response to things. And so mm-hmm. I'm curious, just before we bring Nick in to kind of explain what all these big words mean, what are you doing in your life right now? And what are we doing as business partners in relationship, in, in our life, with our family, with our friends, everything? What are we doing right now to take situations and scenarios that at, at the outset at the initial observation might not might not seem favorable to us or might not seem opportunistic to us what are you doing to reframe that so that you can take that situation that might not seem favorable and turn it around so it can be opportunistic for you mm. i have a closet that i go in regularly and just scream it's soundproofed and it works great no you, you use that closet a... for a couple of different things and that closet is no longer around <laughs> Shoes. <laughs> That's not exactly where I was going, but okay, cool. All right. So but when I come out of the closet, I think that we've come to a point in our lives where we are not content with, with just stagnating and, and enduring to the end. So there's a couple of things that you can do. You can make excuses and blame everyone else and just be miserable, or you can push through. And we've talked about this before, about having that catalyst, that crisis that causes us to make changes. And sometimes it is that thing. And sometimes it's, it's creating a, a routine that helps us to overcome those things that we need to overcome. So I want to take three. And sometimes you just tell me what all my shortcomings are and then I need to work on them. (laughs) I want to take three modalities in your life right now without too much, without too much thought into it. Tell me what you're doing to reframe this so that it's favorable. You recently divorced. What have you done in the last four years to re to change your life from a dire situation to a more opportunistic and promising situation besides for meeting me, of course. I've stepped into the power that I have. And I'm not being afraid of it. You were, you were kept out of of waiting for, for alimony or child support or, you know, the rainbow or whatever to come because it's not come. I like that. Probably never will. So it's not. (laughs) Second piece, your career for a long time. You were, you were, you've been a photographer for years, but for the majority of the last 30 years in that profession you were sort of swept under the covers you weren't allowed to really let your 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 true power shine what have you done in the last couple of years to explore who you are as a business owner a photographer a content creator what have you done to flip the curtain a little bit i've gotten comfortable with being uncomfortable and stepped into those situations that i'm scared of and then on the other side i'm i'm grateful that i did that just finding things that i can learn and grow which makes me happy Mm-hmm. On a personal level, th- there's a story of a, a, a young woman who was found for after many years. She had basically been raised in a closet, and you know she she was pr- introduced. and Nick can tell us the exact details on this because I, I remember studying this in college many years ago. And um, she was reintroduced to the world, and you know, she didn't know how to converse. She didn't know how to socialize. There was all sorts of different pieces, and I'm not saying that's you, but on, on a much smaller scale you were you were sort of inhibited from living your life for a large part of your adult years because of the the, the religion that you grew up in, the sphere of influence that you, that you were surrounded with. How have you found... I was a freak, wasn't I? Kind of were, you still are a freak. <laughs> how have you... A good freak. How have, you, how have you reframed your juxtaposition now, now that you're out from under the covers, if you will, and living, trying to live your best life in your own libertarian sense, like doing the things that you want to do? How, how did you, how did you reframe that and change into this new 
opportunistic role that you're in? Um, I have created relationships that have made a difference in my life. And I think a lot of it is like baby's day out. You just, you just enjoy things that you didn't have the opportunity to enjoy and know that it's, it's something to be grateful for, to have the gratitude for it and, and enjoy that. Like when someone asks me if I want to have a drink of wine and I'm like, yes. And they're what kind? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <Doesn't matter>. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Well, I like your answers on that. I don't know if you prepped for them, but I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> Could you tell? I, I like where you're going with everything. So I just wanted to um, encourage you to continue your personal growth and your therapy Thank session you. is now over. So without further ado, I want to bring in Nick and I just, um, I'll give him a formal introduction. So, so Nick is a, and, and I'll bring him in in a second. Um, Nick is a business coach and I'm probably going to butcher some of the language in here, but he's a business coach who has, um, mixing the use of psychology and Buddhist philosophies. So he's taking Western methodologies, Eastern methodologies, and he's implemented them into his personal and professional business consulting coaching business. And he regularly leads expeditions. Uh, well, he was pre, pre our favorite C word leading fantastic expeditions to exotic destinations all over the world, uh, the Bhutan, Mongolia, Nepal. I'm reading this from, from his book cover and some researchers in um, Thailand, Tibet. He has a BA in psychology, which is where my education stopped. He has an MA in comparative religion. So he's a lot of vast knowledge on the world, on the, on the religious spectrum from all across the globe. And he has a PhD, which I didn't even know you could get this, which is in Buddhist philosophy. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, Aside of all of those credentials, uh, I'm a little bit of history on Nick and, and what I know about him since ever since he was a little kid. And I think this is why he and I are sort of um, in alignment. In a lot of things. He's a very curious man. And every conversation I was telling you in the in the green room before every conversation I've had with him, he's always asking questions, which I really like about that. And um, so as a ch as a child, instead of watching cartoons, he was watching televangelism, which I don't really understand that connection. So we're gonna have to get the picture on that one. Um, instead of dropping beers and drugs with his buddies, he was visiting Buddhist meditation centers. And I keep having this visual of the um, what's that name of that cartoon character, the last airbender. So mm -hmm. he's sort of like the last airbender. Um, instead of watching football and mindless TV, he meditated and he hung out with Zen masters. Like this dude's like four years old as the airbender and he's rolling with Zen masters uh, where he grew up. So um, instead of dating, he was dropping shrooms and doing ayahuasca tea bombs with the Dalai Lama. Okay, that part's not true. But <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa, that kind of sideswiped me. So, so you, you know how I got introduced to Nick. So I, I had completely for, and Nick, please don't be offended. I'm going to bring him in. But when Nick first came in to, to my mind meld, um, I was sitting in my backyard and uh, my daughter brought me a package from the mailbox and I opened it up and it was a book and it was this fantastic book. And I didn't know who it came from. I didn't know who Nick Egan was. I had no idea. I was remember I called you, Lisa, and I was like, um, there's a book in my mailbox and it's really good. I've read like six pages of it and I can't put it down. So I kept reading it. And hey, Nick, welcome to the show. Good to see you. So I kept reading the book and for a couple of weeks, I didn't know where the book came from. And then I realized it dawned on me that Cynthia, our business coach, um, had invited Nick on to do a, a workshop. And that's how I had met Nick. And I didn't feel so special because then I realized everybody got a book. So thank you. I, I didn't get a book. I didn't get a book. I'll check the mail. Yeah, it's definitely on its way, Lisa. Excellent. So Nick wrote this book. And Nick, I, I, I'm 
Yeah, I have sort of fangirl on this book. I've now read it three times. My daughter is in the middle of reading it, um, and she has the same opinion about it as I do. There are just nuggets and morsels throughout the book that are fantastic. And I thought for today's podcast that uh, Lisa and I have pulled out 15 or so really key elements that that really struck us and resonated with us. Or at least I told Lisa they had to resonate with her because she hasn't read it yet. Um, I'm still waiting for it. <laughs> and, and I thought we would we don't have a, we don't have a lot of time to dive into all of them, so we'll have to do that over over another conversation. But I thought we would quickly kind of touch on some of the higher topic points and give you an opportunity to extrapolate on those a little bit for us because there yeah. are really some key nuggets in this book, and I encourage everyone to uh, pick up a copy. Thank you. So, that sounds great. Let's do does it. That sound good. Yeah. Can so, I just so, ask a, a quick question first before you guys get into it because I know it's yeah. going to like be nonstop. I kind of want to know how all of roaming the Himalayas, studying in monasteries, and martial arts. How did martial arts come into that? Like, yeah, I'm happy to happy to talk. Well, first, I mean, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really admire what you both do, and just the little that I've got to know you, um, it's been really great. So, thank you. And Devo, super impressed with your synopsis of the book. First of all, you hit it out of the park on that one, hundred percent correct. And also pretty impressed with your background study of me. I didn't, uh, I don't know where you must have, I don't know where you figured out that I was watching uh, evan- televangelists when I was five and six and trying to figure out like the nature of the world. Um, but we got people, Nick, we got people. Yeah, you do. You definitely do. <laughs> um, yeah. So martial arts from the time Diva's right. When I was really young, I was always really interested in spirituality. And back in those days, it was not easy. I mean, we didn't, I, you know, I'm in my early 40s, so we didn't have the internet and all of that. So I would read any book that I could get my hands on, whether it was about crystals or like even the Book of Mormon um, from a really young age. And I started studying martial arts and there's an element of spirituality within martial arts. Um, and that sort of drew me in. And so that actually is still a big part of my life right now. Um, and then from the time I was able to drive, I actually, I went around to different meditation centers and ended up taking some classes, um, kind of like the standard new age meditation classes. And then I, there happened to be a really famous Roshi, who's a, an abbot of a Zen monastery um, near where I lived about 30 minutes. Uh, he's a student of Shinru Suzuki who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Minds. Maybe oh, some people are familiar with that book. And he completely blew my mind. I mean, he was truly who you think of as like a bodhisattva, somebody that's enlightened, somebody that that really has some level of attainment. And so from that point on, when I was 16, I really just reaffirmed my life direction and really wanted to study Buddhism in particular. And then I kind of migrated over to the Tibetan side, mostly because there's a lot of a lot of richness in the Tibetan practice, a lot of mantras, a lot of energy work, a lot of debate, that kind of stuff. Um, and then from there, you know, graduate school, studying in a monastery, all of that good stuff. And one thing led to another. So you don't use your martial arts in your coaching to, you know, kick butt? Only when people talk back to me. Okay. Yeah. Actually, it's funny. I do. I, whenever I'm talking to, to people in, on the first call, I tell them a lot of the analogies that I bring are from martial art, like my background in martial arts. And, I, you know, if, if violent analogies offend you, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just like a big part of, of who I am and how I think about things. They don't offend me. It's a, it's a, it's sort of a part of the fabric of everyone's lives. So I appreciate it. And I'm a former athlete, so I can appreciate some of the the metaphors that you talk about in your book. Sure. So let's jump into the book because we've already spent 15 minutes with me introducing you. That's a long list that you had me read for you. So I want to just jump into some of my questions. <laughs> 
the first topic, and you heard Lisa and I talking a little bit about it in the outset of the call, sustainable growth. And in the book, you talk about uh, our, our, our inability, or sorry, let me reframe this. Our inability to deal with sustainability comes from examining our own limitations. You talk a lot about reframing our limitations and having that, that shift that occurs when the perceived limitations that we held can be altered and modified, and then those become catalysts for further expansion and growth. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the first time you came into this topic and where that came from and how you sort of arrived at that conclusion? Because there's a lot of different pieces in that that um, resonated with me coming from Buddhism. Um, uh, there's a lot of Indian uh, lore in there, and of course, most of it Eastern methodologies, but I'd just like to hear your, your framework on it for a minute. Yeah, I don't, I can't pinpoint an exact time um, where that became real for me. I think it was over a long period of time where it really came out of um, some of this, I quote in the book, actually. So the Bodhicharya Avatar, the, the Bodhisattva's way of life or the Bodhisattva's book of action is one way to think about it. And what he talks about is dealing with difficulty. And anytime you're dealing with difficulty, you have the opportunity to see that difficulty as uh, further advancement of your own spiritual path, right? So it's really within a spiritual context, not so much within a business context. And that's, but it does work, right? So anything that it works within the spiritual context will often work in psychological, emotional, and business-wise. Um, and so what the idea is generally is thinking about somebody who is causing you harm or a situation that's causing you harm and thinking like, how is this an invitation for me to personally grow? Now, it doesn't mean you, you stop the harm from happening, right? I don't want you, I'm not, I don't want anybody to think we need to become a martyr. In fact, I talk a lot about this in the book. Like I don't want anybody to be a work harder martyr or poor me or any of that kind of victim mentality. Um, but it is this, the invitation, as I was mentioning, to think deeper about who I want to be as a person and then the actions that I want to take. Are you getting ready to ask a question, Lise? No, I'm just, I'm just wondering how you get to that point in your life where you can like not be reactive and sit back and yeah. be thoughtful about and intentional right. about what you're doing. Yeah. That's I a, haven't reached that yet. That's a great question. Um, I'm sure you have. I'm actually, I'm sure you have. I'm sure that there are times when if you have children or anything like that, where they're, where you're less reactive and you, mm -hmm. they do things that, um, might enrage you or might upset you, but actually you find the space to be able to, to respond instead of react. And so when you ask how, it's a great question. Um, I really think of it as there's two main ways. One way is you need like a daily practice to be able to center yourself to make sure that you have the innate capacity or have the, the, the occasion to be able to transfer this knowledge in real time, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing then is the real time then application. And it makes it a lot easier if you've already had this background in meditation or mindfulness or some kind of practice. It doesn't even necessarily have to be spiritual practice. It could be like a, a really hardcore workout routine, something that strengthens the mind that allows you to say like, oh, there's some moment of stimulus. And then there's like, I'm going to have this reaction. I can feel it brewing and then be able to apply an antidote to it. And when you're thinking about an antidote, there are different kinds. Like one is a cognitive kind of antidote. So you can think about it and actually like think about the story that you're telling yourself and say like, okay, well, how could I reframe this in a different way? How might I see this as the, the very thing that I need to be able to get to the next level? Or how can I use this for my own personal development? Or how can I use this as an opportunity to be more kind or whatever it is? So there's, there's those stories that you're applying in the moment. 
Right. How, how can I just say that's why I had four kids so I can experiment on each one and get a little bit better as I go along? Not yeah, reactive. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Even within business. So a lot of my clients, both on the success side and on the challenges, if you think about the challenges that you blow past today that are like nothing to you, probably early on in your business career, they were like a big deal, right? A lot of my clients, they're in the service or service industry in some way. And it's like, oh, I'm just going to sit around and kind of think about my color scheme or I'm really hung up on what I call myself or my business card or whatever. And now it's like those are nothing decisions that they just get past really quickly. So our innate capacity grows as we continue to grow. Yeah, I want to read, if I may, I can read something while Elisa turns off her phone. Um, the crucial first step in creating sustainable growth and lasting change is to examine the limitations of your internal mindset. Shifting your viewpoint can enable you to use your perceived external limitations as catalysts for personal and organizational progress. By shifting your perspective, it's what will ultimately make you nimble and free in every situation that comes your way. And the note that I, I wrote in, my, in your book here is there's a lot of different layers to this, but the takeaway I had for that is by almost by taking a personal inventory of the limitations and the beliefs that we have about ourselves, by taking that mental inventory around that and acknowledging what they are, we're better able to address each of them individually and in, in, in so doing have the expansion that we want, right? Is that an interpretation proper? Yeah, that's exactly, I would say that's a great interpretation. Um, and very often those perceived limitations can actually become strengths. Mm -hmm. so one way, one way to think about it is like, yes, absolutely. You know, how can we expand in like whatever the, that limitation, whatever my perception of a limitation is, how can I then transform that into a strength? And it maybe isn't always immediately, um, understandable or obvious, but there are oftentimes ways that we can do that. Yeah, I, it's a fantastic lesson. And uh, there's a lot of different ways we can go into it. But I'd like to move on to the next one, if that's okay with everyone, because there's a lot of different sure. points in here I want to touch on. You talk a little bit about enlightenment. And, and we're in this day and age now where everybody's awoke or awake or whatever they're trying to do. And I don't even really know what that term means. But you talked a lot about this going to this metaphorical heaven or nirvana, depending upon which perspective you hold, Christianity, Buddhism, etc. And you were talking about you were you were meeting with one of the Buddhist monks, I believe, or somebody from one of the Zen temples. And you were asking them, what is nirvana? Is, is nirvana the role to live your life and go to nirvana and live in perpetual happiness? Or is nirvana being here on this plane, on this planet now and serving others? And he looked at you and said, this is nirvana. Like the whole point of being on this planet is nirvana. It's for you to make the proper choices. And the only way we don't find nirvana is by limiting ourselves based upon the choices that we make. And that really blew me away because... One of my favorite things is you change your perspective, you change your reality. And so I, I, love, I love that piece. I don't even know who said it. I'm probably butchering the quote. But Not can yet. I get your take on that space a little bit? And you were talking about the conversation with the Zen master and how it was one of those moments where you meet, you know, in the Karate Kid where he drops some wisdom and you're just kind of like, holy fuck. Yeah. I yeah. It, right? Yeah. It was definitely – it was a showstopper. That's for sure. Um, I remember being speechless and him just kind of walking away. Uh, and I was just kind of stuck there thinking thunderstruck. Um, it's this whole notion of it's really when you think about enlightenment and what constitutes enlightenment and where is enlightenment and, and what all of that stuff is about. Right. And it's broad. It's broad depending on any tradition that you're thinking of. Um, it really boils down to how do we remove the conceptions that are limiting our true nature, which is in essence 
completely um, unobstructed, completely infinite, completely interconnected. Right. So from a, a traditional Buddhist perspective, what they're going to say is like, look, you're already enlightened. You just don't actually realize it yet. And if you remove that limited thinking, you're the, the ultimate sort of um, self-negating belief. Right. We, we deal with this in our business all the time. Like, oh, I don't think I can be this successful or, oh, I, you know, I can grow to this level, but not to this level. But the ultimate is, look, actually, I am interconnected with the universe in such a way that it's impossible to separate out one reality from the other. So it's like all essentially a kind of a oneness. Now, I don't mean you're like losing yourself and you're obliterated. That often gets interpreted that way because it's using this, this language of um, you're not that, right? But we're not limited. We're not just, we're not just the space that's within our, our skin and bones and all of that. We're not just our thoughts. We're not just even the perceiver of the thoughts. So it goes far beyond that. And the way to do that is actually to remove the limited conceptions around that. I love that. Oh, the potential in that is mind blowing. Yeah. I wish that was, that's Buddha circa, circa 500 BC. <laughs> I have expected you to come on the podcast in a, a Shivara with like an, a bow tie or something so that you yeah. could have had the best <laughs> of both worlds. You should have done that. Totally. I could, I have a shawl somewhere I can find it. All right. Can I move on to the next question? Sure. Um, this one is something that really touched close to me because uh, it's something that I struggle with on a daily basis and it centers around rigid expectations. And by the way, Lisa, I know that if there's any point, I'm just hogging the mic, just throw, throw me under the bus. I'm fine with that. But it centers around rigid expectations. And, and I have, as Lisa will tell you, I have high expectations for most everything I do, including working with my staff, with my children, sometimes in relationship, <laughs> most often not, it's usually not my fault, but I have rigid expectations around things and it's because I sort of get this idea in my head on how something should work or how something should look. And you talked about how having these rigid expectations basically lead to is the path leading to obstructions in our lives. And if we can learn to be more fluid around things, if we leave room for, I think you call it alternative, uh, an alternative interpretation of how we experience people and things, then that leaves, that leaves, opportunities and avenues for things we hadn't yet considered yet. So am I paraphrasing that properly? But if not, can you just sort of clean that up a little bit for me around the rigid expectations? Because that piece really, I've read that part like 22 times. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're saying it well. Um, rigidity is definitely the enemy in a lot of ways, right? So rigidity around our expectations. Now, this is really important because that's not to say that you throw out any expectations, right? Or you become like this kind of loser, wishy-washy, like, oh, it's all just whatever. And that's th those are kind of two extremes of the same coin in a lot of ways, right? So on the one hand, it's like I have rigid, high expectations. They aren't met and some like inevitable disappointment happens and I'm sort of fixed. I have a fixed mindset within that. On the other side, oh, screw it. I don't have any expectations. Like I'm just a bum going to do whatever and like everything. It doesn't matter anyway. So those two are both incorrect and will both lead to a certain kind of dissatisfaction and certainly around outcomes. So the key here is to have high expectations or have clear expectations but also to hold them very loosely. And it's interesting too, because this, this dovetails really nicely with what meditation is about. So a lot of people think like meditation, if I'm teaching my clients meditation, oh, well, I'm just gonna be relaxed and blissed out, right? That's the one side. Or on the other side, they try to be like very rigid, very like, I'm not gonna move. I'm gonna take a vow to like not move for one hour, no matter what and all of that. And it's actually, it's neither of those two things. One is too tense, the other one is too loose. So it's, it's actually right in between. You wanna have 
um, that kind of clarity, that kind of awareness, alertness, but at the same time, be very flexible with it. And this is where Devo, going back to like the martial arts, I always tell my clients, look, you're not trying to be sweetness and light hippie all the time. And you're not trying to be like some drill sergeant. I want you to be like this awakened, alert, uh, enlightened samurai who's totally relaxed, totally loose, completely enjoying his tea, but also ready at the drop of a hat to, to cut through things. I was trying to show you my samurai tattoo. But oh, I can't awesome. Turn, I can't, I can't see it, my, but yeah. <laughs> can't turn my wrist that far. So it's all about balance, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the key to everything. You don't want to be radically one side or the other. It's sort of about finding a balance between the two. It's balance. Balance is an interesting word in English, right? Because balance can mean like you go too far one, you go too far the other. But I, it's more balance in kind of that yin yang type of way where there's one within the other, like that kind of balance. So I would say it's even even more than balance. It's more about integration. Explain. I don't get that. So if you say it's balance, like, hey, I'm, I'm a little bit I'm kind of I'm kind of chill and I'm kind of not. I'm sort of like in the middle. Right. That's different than saying, like, I am completely aware and totally relaxed at the same time. That one is integration. The other one is balance between two things. Hmm. That's an interesting way to put that. I hadn't thought about that. There's a lot of hmm moments in this podcast, isn't there? <laughs> you told a story about you were doing, I don't know if you were a teacher or if you were, a, um, if you were in, a, in the monastery or what you're doing, but you told a story about, I think you were doing teaching for grade school kids. And you told a story about um, you had a, a meeting with some of the parents and mm -hmm. the, some of the parents were angry that you had either demoted their kids or kicked them out of class. I can't remember what you had done. And, and they, they, it was either a parent teacher conference and they were confronting you. And you talked about how you would change the paradigm by changing the context in which you approached people because you were no longer rigid around that. Can you tell that little story and reframe that? Because I thought it was a powerful story. And I, I loved how you, the, the takeaway that I took from that was meeting people where they are, as opposed to forcing people into a situation. Yeah. It's meeting, meeting people where they are, but also seeing it as the invitation to further your own development. Actually, that's my, my favorite story about this is in, and it's in the book too, was in graduate school where there was this guy that was literally in my cohort. So he was in every single class when I was studying psychology. And he was a, also a fan of kind of Asian studies and maybe had not studied as deeply as I wanted him to at the time. And so I was, he's always coming up short in my mind in terms of the answers, but yet still he was like constantly raising his hand, always kind of in front of the, in front of the teacher and all that. And I would sort of roll my eyes internally and be like, God, I wish this guy, like he, that's such a partial understanding, blah, 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 all this stuff. And one day I was actually, I was meditating because I was meditating fairly young and I was doing this practice around compassion called Tonglen, right? So it's like you breathe out compassionate wishes for other people. You like breathe in kind of their difficulties, their, their sufferings, and you breathe out. That's the, that's the main practice. And it occurred to me, I was like, God, what a hypocrite. Like I'm sitting here going to, I'm practicing meditation on my cushion, trying to have this positive wish for all sentient beings in theory. And then I'm going to class and being annoyed by this guy that's like wanting to share his knowledge, right? And so what I did was I said, well, I'm going to just going to take my practice off the cushion and I'm going to go and try to do that practice in the classroom. So I did that. And sure enough, at least from my perception, within a minutes, the guy kind of like calmed down and he didn't, he wasn't, didn't feel the need to like ask so many or not even ask, like share so many perspectives and true, true story. We ended up becoming, um, 
I would, you know, friends is maybe too strong of a word, but close acquaintances at least uh, throughout our years there. I'm not in touch with them still, but maybe someday. Hmm. So the point is it, it can be very transformative in terms of the actual situation that you're in, but the bare minimum, it helped me, right? At the bare minimum, I wasn't annoyed. So that bare minimum was that. And also very often it can help whoever it is that you're, you're near, right? Cause their, their immune system, I mean, their uh, nervous system can relax. Lise, do you have a question? No, I'm, I'm going to let you go through all your. <laughs> so I'm actually going to go off topic for a second because I'm fascinated by it. I, I studied psychology in college. I did film studies and some other degrees I, I pecked up that are absolutely worthless to me. But how did you get into the space that you are now going from psychology, PhD in Buddhist? Uh, you have an, a background in religious, religious studies. How did you get into the space of doing consulting and coaching and helping corporate executives and business minded people? How, how did yeah. what was that pathway? So my, my family is a pretty successful family of real estate developers um, in multifamily real estate. So I've been involved in that world. Um, that's the part that I don't usually put on LinkedIn because I, I try, I don't really want to attract people that are looking for industry level experience, right? I don't want to be a consultant. I really want to be a coach. And going back to my psychology days, um, I really became a little bit disenchanted with psychology after my undergrad, which is why I went into, to philosophy and religion, I wanted to understand the mind deeply. And what I found, at least through my program, was that they weren't really interested in understanding the mind in the way that I was thinking of it. And so I, I was more, much more drawn to the so Asian, but also any kind of Western spirituality as well, because I felt like that was a deeper level. So I sort of took a hiatus from that many, many years, decades, in fact. And then it wasn't until I came across somebody who was giving away like, like free coaching sessions. And I think she was an ad executive out of Chicago. And I came to it a little bit arrogant, um, just thinking like, oh, you know, I have all this background in meditation and, and psychology, like what's this coaching about? But it was free. And so I took a, did a few sessions and I was totally blown away. Um, and I thought this is really worth exploring. It's what I got into psychology for in the first place. And then, so I, I went, went to the same training that she did through the coaches or coactive training Institute the CTI. And I was same thing, completely blown away with the methodology. Um, you know, I was actually working on the book at the time. So it was like right in line with a lot of the things that I was thinking about a lot of Buddhist phenomenology, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so that's how I just, one thing led to another. So it's, I always tell people like, look, I could have been a life coach, but I speak fluent business and fluent corporate. So it just made sense to kind of fit within there. But coaching's coaching. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. I, I, I always coach the whole person anyway. And, you know, whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, like there's always, there are always things that come in that are more of a personal nature and that can inform your business or your professional life too. I love that. I love the approach, the the Western ideology, the Eastern ideology, and the mixture of the of the two that you bring to the table, and not only the way you live your life, but of course your coaching business as well. It's fantastic. Why do you think that Eastern Eastern ideologies seem to be making a resurgence right now? They've been they've been thrown they they were thrown for many years, especially in in, in America for for hundreds of years, completely thrown out, and and they sort of seem to be having a resurgence right now. What, yeah. what do you think is going on? So I actually think that the main draw from the Eastern perspective, of course, there's like mysticism and all of that stuff that I think appeals to people. Like some people are just drawn to like the cultural trappings. But I think when you actually look at it, it, it comes down to the path. 
like if you think about Buddhism, there's an actual like path that you you may not get to within this lifetime, or it may be just aspirational for you. But there's like some actual concrete steps that you can do to be able to find more happiness, to understand openness more, to have all these blissful experiences, and you know even enlightenment, whatever that. However, we can conceptualize that, which obviously is beyond concepts anyway. But there's the the path aspect, whereas in Western religion at least as interpreted in America over the past hundred years, I think has lacked a certain, the path, right? There's the salvific element of like, you will be saved, right? You pray to Jesus, you're going to be saved. There's like some prayers. Um, but in terms of like, how do you actually feel blissful or how do you feel, you know, when, when in, in Luke 17, 21, where he's talking about like the kingdom of heaven is within, right? How do you, how do you feel that? And that in the Western tradition has very much been relegated to the monasteries um, and not, not even like priests, I would say many priests don't, that's not an active part of what they're doing because they're not really contemplatives. They're actually more of like political, they're polit politicians in the sense that they're helping their flock, right? They're helping their flock do ethical actions that are good. And then on top of that, like have that salvific element, which is the prayer aspect, but like a contemplative practice. And I will say this, that like, even, you know, I love Eastern Orthodox and uh, my grandmother on my dad's side is devout Catholic. I, I kind of came up in the Catholic church too. And she has a tremendous uh, mystical spiritual practice um, that's very much in line with, you know, some of the Buddhist things that I do, visualization and, and she has a great feeling for it. So it's there. It's just not as obvious. Right. And mm -hmm. I also think that too, if you go to, if you go to Tibet, you know, people expect all, all Tibetans to know tons of stuff about Buddhism. That's not the case at all. I mean, many, many times like the Westerners that I bring will know far more than the average Tibetan about like the Tibetan tradition. So it's, it sure. just has to do with, I think what you're looking for. Sure. I love what you just said about the scripture from Luke. And I, I was listening to a Greg Braden podcast recently and he was, yeah. he was, he was breaking down the books of Enoch and all the translations that have been changed in the modern Bible and just yeah. simple words like the tenses of a word from the past tense to the present tense and the way that they've rearranged words in the, in the second rewrite after the books were rewritten after Constantinople burned all of them. And, but he was reading um, all the scriptures from the book of Enoch and then uh, rereading this actual scripture of what it originally said. And it's amazing how much of that work of those original scriptures actually dealt specifically with the power within the God within all of us, not so much a metaphorical God sitting in the sky somewhere. And we can, I'm not going to go into that too much. Cause yeah, I can that's talking yeah. about that for hours and hours. All right, back to the hot <laughs> That's seat. a power play there. Yeah. I, I see. And I would love to have had more of that mindset in religion, I kind of left my religion with like judgment, fear, guilt, none of those positive, you know, and none of yeah. that, you know, building on, on your potential and, and, you know, reaching out to your community and bettering yourself. Right. Right. I will say, I mean, one last thing I just had, I just had a conversation with a, a client of mine and she was, she's Christian. Um, and she was talking about how do you, how do you believe in yourself enough? And I was talking about like faith in the Christian tradition and, and belief. And we were talking about this parable of the fig tree, which maybe I, it's not very popular and not well known, but basically Jesus goes and he, he says, there's a fig tree that has no fruit. And he says, you know, may you be barren or something like that. And then they come back the next season and the fig tree is completely died. And his disciples say like, wow, you know, you, you basically killed that fig tree with your wishes. And he was like, this is nothing. That's nothing. You know, you can literally like move mountain. You can do anything with faith, which it, actually in Tibetan faith and confidence are the same word, depa, 
right? And so like in English, it, those two kind of mean different things, right? But I, if you think of faith as like confidence in yourself, confidence in the divine, however you think about that, that's a very powerful wellspring and something that I think is unfortunately not often taught in an accessible way in the Western traditions. Mm-hmm. Man, can we're we going to have to do... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Lise. Uh, can we talk a little bit about your, your mentioned um, reducing your addiction to urgency? Oh, yeah. I want to hear more about that because honestly, everything is a code red nowadays. Everything's yeah. <laughs> putting <Yeah>. out fires. <laughs> big time, big time. There's so... There's so much to say about that. When, if you think about, so addiction to urgency, right? We feel, and I've had it, right? I've had it. I still can get it where it's like, oh, wow, I did so many things. I had eight clients today and I had, I talked to a potential new client and I did a group class and it's like, ooh, boom, 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 you're you're going. There's this sense that we're actually productive. We're fulfilling that um, momentum, right? And we want to be productive and we want to have momentum, but what we don't want to have is that addiction. We don't want to be in the grip of it. Because what happens is instead of now solving the important things that will lead to less of those outbreaks of urgency, we end up just focusing on those things. So it's like, I, I, it's kind of like a firefighter just like starting fires and then putting out fire. You get addicted to firefighting instead of being like, well, maybe we should actually solve the problem that's starting all the fires in the first place. And that's actually a really tough thing to do for a couple reasons. One, if you're, especially if you're in business with yourself, for yourself, it's like you, how do you know what the source of those fires is? Number one, how do you carve out enough time when it feels like those fires are going to overtake you? Like, no, I don't have time. I don't have time to do whatever it is that's going to fix those things long-term because I've got to like deal with this crap storm that's happening right now. And so that's the addiction to urgency is really um, one of the biggest stumbling blocks with the people that I work with, um, just in terms of like being able to identify it, number one, and then being able to accurately kind of go upstream. One of my favorite stories actually is like a, there's a Tibetan saying, and it says that if you throw, and this, it's, the context is a little bit different, but they say, if, you're, if you throw a, a stick for a dog, the dog will go chase the stick. But if you throw a stick for a lion, the lion will turn around and chase the one that threw it. Right. So who, what I want us to be is I want us to be lions in our business, in our lives and chase the thrower of the stick, not chase the stick. Back to the violence again, I see. Yeah. <laughs> Always, Diva. That reminds me, Lisa and I talk about this a lot of times because we both have, can I say this? We both have family members who, who I call, they have superhero complexes and they actually create drama and problem spots so that they can be the superhero and become as you say, reaffirm their own, I think you called it reaffirming their influence and their own identity in your book is what you said. Because by surviving on this cycle of urgency, they're sort of confirming their operational bias on who they are. They're here to save the day and and they can't function unless there's some sort of drama circulating around them that they always have to be the solution-oriented problem solver for it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So even in in a work context or in a personal context, you're going to have people that are stuck in this mode, right? We all have this to some degree, and but you're going to have people that they really operate on this as their their main kind of platform. And what happens if you notice this, if you stay calm and the other person wants you to get brought into their urgency, their panic, they ramp it up. They're like, well, you don't see how this is really bad. This is the freaking end of the world. Like you got to be, you got to be with me on this. And then they start to get more and more and they... They ramp it up more and more the more you stay calm until there's like a breaking point, right? And so it's 
that's a pattern that's very, very common with if you have employees, if you a lot of people will experience it with their boss, things like that. Like the wor- the hardest is when you have a boss that's like this, too. But yeah, family members can do it. Absolutely. At that point, it's it, going back now, bring in some more martial arts. At that point, what you want to do is you want to just stay with them in a way that is not that doesn't go with them or doesn't push them in any way. Right. So it's kind of like that jujitsu where you're just, you're staying with the, the person and you're not really trying to make any maneuvers. You're just like waiting. I prefer to think of myself as the lion and I chasing them because they're the stick thrower and attack them. <laughs> I, that's the first time anybody's ever. Yeah. Yeah. Really uh, brought that in, in the same way. I like that. Mm. Next tattoo needs to be a lion. <laughs> uh, your cover is a tiger. Should, should it be a lion? <laughs> Maybe next time. Hmm. Oh, is there a sequel? Uh, I don't know if it's a sequel, but there's more on the horizon for sure. I like it. Yeah. All right. Next topic, limiting stories that we tell ourselves. And I yeah. love this piece. I love all these pieces, but I actually have it written on my desk. There's a piece that I pulled from your book that um, whenever I encounter a situation that doesn't meet my limiting story around it, you ask yourself a couple of questions. And, and number one, you said, is it true? Number two, could it be different? And number three, could I alter how I think about this situation? And the the piece that I'm referencing in the book, and I believe it was somewhere in the middle of the book around page 60 or 70, you talk about the limiting stories we tell ourselves and that every story that we tell ourselves ultimately becomes a trap for us believing that it's the only way that it can be true. It's the only possible outcome. And so I, I love that piece that every time you encounter these situations that might not ring true for you or might cause you some consternation, you ask yourself, is it true? Could it be different? Could I alter how I think about it? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That actually... Reading, a- anyone reading your book by me just telling all these parables from the book? <laughs> yeah. <stop. laughs> yeah. He'd show you what page, but everything is underlined in there and highlighted. That's perfect. I, like, I love it. Um, that actually comes from... Uh, this famous philosopher named Chandra Kirti. And it was a, he's an Indian philosopher, Buddhist philosopher. And he said that all views are partial, meaning all perspectives are partial. And then he follows it up with even that one. Right? So even the view that all views are partial is itself partial. <laughs> so it, what it's pointing to is that by definition, any kind of conceptualization that we have, any st- another way to say that is any kind of story that we have about something, whether we like it, we don't like it, um, we're neutral about it, it's only just a story. And the conceptualization by its very nature is limited. And if we realize that and we have the space to do it, we can transform it into anything, right? Mm-hmm. One of my Buddhist teachers actually used to say, actually, he would say this about, this is funny, about Chandra Kirti. There's a folk story where somebody was debating Chandrakirti and Chandrakirti goes over to a mural of a cow and starts like milking the cow to say, to show like, look, it doesn't, your conception of what's real and what's fake is not real. Like it sounds like something Saudi guru would do in some of his stuff. Yeah, yeah totally. Totally a little display of miraculous power there. Yeah. Um, but the point is we do have the power to change it. And to be honest, like this, this is to the degree to which you can operate even to, to a small level within your life and to be able to change your story around something ne- that other people perceive as negative. It is a, a kind of superpower, right? People will say like, oh, I can't believe like it's so amazing. You went through that. You're so strong or, you know, how you handled that was so graceful or I can't believe you're not stressed by that, all of that because you're walking through and it's you're not taking for 
absolute certainty what other people perceive of as real right it's sort of like being it's like being the only one in a movie theater in a scary movie or in a very compelling movie and you're enjoying the movie but you know it's a movie everybody else just thinks it's like the reality does that make sense it makes perfect sense um what's a flow state uh, flow state is so it has a few different meanings. The way I tend to use it in my book, it's when you are completely engaged in something and you have a kind of a mental absorption in it and it's usually pleasurable, right? So, and also time seems to slow down. Time has different meanings depending on how you're, how you're interpreting it. So time could slow down or time could go really quick. So if you're in a flow state doing something that you love, you might look up at the clock and it's like two hours have passed, right? Or if you're in a flow state and you're snowboarding or skiing or something, it's like everything can kind of slow down and you can respond in different ways. Um, the reason that's important is because you, you get into a flow state. Some people talk about it as like your zone of genius where you're pushing yourself enough to where things you have to really like attend to the task completely, but it's not so far that you're completely frustrated, if that makes sense. And it, when I talk to my clients and we teach, I teach them meditation, actually what you're trying to do within meditation and to some, to some degree, right. In early days, you're trying to um, create this flow state just by sitting down with your breathing. So if you can imagine that most people, like they only experience a flow state when they're doing something like, well, I said snowboarding or surfing, any kind of any fluid or martial arts kind of sports tends to elicit that. People talk about that. It came out of sports science in some ways. Um, but it's completely possible to get into those flow states even just by sitting, breathing, paying attention. So ideally what you want is to be able to access that flow state at any time. So a flow state for me, Lise, would be, you know, I've 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 taken video of you on a lot of your photo shoots when you're out and about and you sort of go into a, a trance when you're out there and, and you, cause you've got, and if you've ever seen Lisa on the set before, it's, it's something fantastic to watch. Uh, she'll have, especially for, for one of her jobs that she does re repeatedly, there'll be a bunch of different chefs in the kitchen and everybody has an idea of how it should work. But for, for some way, shape or form, you do go into this sort of cathartic, flow state where none of that seems to matter and you're just able to focus on the task at hand and no matter what people say or what people do you're able to sort of transform that that set into something that works exactly how you wanted it to do so i see you go into that all the time that's after i come out of the closet that i've just screamed into <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's a really that's a beautiful analogy or not even analogy that of when lisa goes into it because in the in those states things, difficulties will arise, challenges will arise, but you're able to then integrate those challenges or use them in this very masterful way, almost like a magician, right? Mm -hmm. Or a, a wizard of some kind. And people yeah. look at you like, wow, how the hell did you do that? Mm -hmm. Or I couldn't have done that. And it's like, if you look back on it, you might not have even been able to do it either, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it feels like it's just this natural weird thing. You're like, wow, how the heck did I do that? I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. So that kind of that's a flow state when i was eating the rest of that angry ice cream cake i had the last night i was in a flow state that you made left here lise i have a question so you talk a little about these narratives that we tell ourselves and <clears throat> sometimes the narratives are based upon our own personal context and they may or may not be right but right is 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 up to whoever it's a subjective term right but how, how do we how do we approach someone or how do we approach a narrative if we know it to be inherently wrong or even damaging to the person who presents that story or can be damaging to the collective as a whole. What is our job? What is our personal responsibility as Taoist Buddhists and 
Western and, and Eastern philosophers that you are to approach that person when we know inherently that that is wrong. Yeah. So by wrong, do you mean ethically wrong or do you mean factually incorrect? Morally, ethically, factually damaging. Damaging to them. To everyone. Yeah. So first of all, I would say change, be careful around your sense of urgency with it, your own, your own self sense of urgency, because it could take years and years and years to, for somebody to see a slightly different perspective, or people can understand, you know, people can attain complete enlightenment within one instance. So being attached to like the timeline of when they see the limitations of their own view itself is a limitation. So self-regulate around that. That's the first thing. The second thing is every, every view, every perspective gives people something. Every single one doesn't matter how wrong it is. Doesn't matter how damaging it is. It gives them some either sense of safety, comfort, um, superiority, some kind of ego safety. Right. And so getting to the bottom of that, like, Oh, interesting. Tell me more. So getting curious about that. Tell me more about that. What does that give you? What does that uh, look like for you? How does that, how does that play out in your day-to-day life? What does that mean for the rest of whatever, like getting really curious, asking those kind of questions going into it. And then, the invitation to say, how might somebody view it differently? How might this be viewed differently? Not to say that you're wrong, not to say that one is right, one's wrong, whatever. Just say, how could it be from seen from a different perspective? And then if they say, you know, there's no other perspective, then it's like, go back into the, tell me more about it. Right. And I'm kind of using this from a coaching, like a coaching relationship. Um, It's not super easy to do outside of a coaching relationship. It's not even easy to do necessarily within a coaching relationship, but people hold their views very tightly and people hold their views tightly because they think it's them. And when you point out the wrongness of their views, it's pointing out the wrongness of them. And so it becomes a very uh, ego shaking type of situation. They feel very threatened by that. And if they don't, then it doesn't, <laughs> it, if they don't feel threatened by it, they're already probably pretty far along. Right. So let's take off your coach's hat and let's talk to Nick Egan for a second. Your neighbor comes to you and, and confides in you with some damaging news that you know could have some deleterious impact or cascade either in your family, with your community, and, and anyone around you that engages with that. How do you respond to that, to that person right then and there? Some news. I mean, what? I don't understand. Give me a little bit more about the news. They give you a narrative that you know to be factually not true, but you know, but they're still trying to convince you that it is. They want you to behave in a certain way. They want you to act a certain way because that's how they think they're going to do it. And they share this with you and that they're going to share that with the rest of the world around them, the community around them. And they have a, they're a person of influence. Let's say they have a, a sphere of influence. What's your response to them when you know it to be factually damaging and wrong? When I know it to be factually damaging and wrong, I would say, number one, that I, I do trust the inherent goodness of people and I do trust the inherent resourcefulness of people. So I don't think I would be super panicked that people would take it hook, line and sinker. And if they did, that is, there may be some benefit that I'm seeing that I don't see to it, right? So I would try to tell the person, I would try to say, hey, look, I see it a different way. I hear what you're saying about this, this and this. I see it a different way. Here's some counterpoints to that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And kind of invite the, inv- the invitation for dialogue. So you wouldn't bite into the lure? No, definitely not. 
So you, you would you would take the path of engaging more passively with them and encourage less impulsivity around it. I'm quoting somebody from a book I read. Yeah, I would try to do that. <laughs> That's what I would try. All right, Lise, there's something we're running out of time. So mm-hmm. I still have about 25 things I want to yeah. ask. But one of the things Lisa and I are going to be podcasting on shortly, and I love that you talk about it, is you called it the 80% bullshit or the AKA Pareto principle. 20% yeah. of what we do shows up in 80% of our results. And that's across the board, how we train, how we run our business, how we live our lives, how we're in relationship, et cetera. How can, how can one spend more focused energy on that 20% so that they can maximize a greater 80% of that? The best way is through experimentation. That's the best way that I've found. However, to do it, that sounds simple, right? Oh, just drop off certain things. The, to get to that point, it's often like this Herculean task because you have to convince people. People have to understand that that principle applies even to them. And most people are like, if you say, oh, look, you know, 80, the 80% principle may be true, but for me in my day to day, like I couldn't possibly not do these things. What could I possibly not do? You show me like that kind of mentality. And if you say, okay, well, let's go through it and look at your day and just imagine what if you ruthlessly cut out some stuff? Let's ruthlessly cut out. Like I'm not a huge fan of diets and all of that stuff, but kind of like the whole 30, right? Like the whole 30 is remove these things and it's like you eat and then you slowly put things back into play and you have to be willing to to let things um, not work as well as they might to be able to find what that that 20% is that creates the 80% impact. That would be the first thing. The other thing is I think people are pretty insightful when it comes to if they really sit down and say, if you give them the space and you say, look, what are the things that you can get rid of that take up a lot of your time that are not very impactful, right? Or the things that you can outsource or the things that you can just stop doing. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I do this every single day with clients and we, it's like, okay, you're, you have a bunch of offerings, let's say. Okay, which of these offerings are the ones that don't really add a ton of value to your clients that we can get rid of that are just time sucks for you? Immediate, almost always they say, oh, there's no, uh, there's none. I've done this exercise before. And then if you get into it, it's like, oh, actually, there's a good 20, 30, even 80% that we can get rid of. And the 80% that we can get rid of are the things that really don't add specific pointed value to what we're ultimately trying to accomplish. Sitting there and scrolling through our Instagram all day long or reading emails superfluously or whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, that stuff. There's that stuff. There's that stuff. It's a little harder to do the stuff that's like kind of good though, right? So you want to be, you want to, I like to set the bar really high where it's like, okay, there are a lot of good things to be done within a business or within my personal life. But what are the things that really truly create impact that's outsized? regards with regards to it's the actual effort that I put into it. The things that are like huge, huge needle movers, really, that's how I think about it, that really move the needle. What are those very few things? And at the end of the day, you should come up with a very short list. And then the question is like, how do I double down on those? How do I lean into those? How do I make those things the, the even easier to do? How do I spend more time doing those things? And how can I get rid of those other pieces? It's sort of like, I mean, if you go to, if you talk to weight, like serious, not bodybuilders necessarily, but like serious weightlifters, strength trainers, there are very few, it's like the big compound exercises, right? So like, it's like squats, bench press, you know, uh, deadlift, those three, you can just forget everything else. Those are the main, the main ones and everything else is kind of superfluous. But yet what do most people do? They go to the gym and they do all kinds of tweaky exercises. 
Yeah, but going back to that rule that we talked about in the beginning, it, you don't you don't like the word balance, but you do need that balance because if you're just working on the big three, all of those supporting ancillary muscles get left out, and that's when you get prone to injury. Ah, uh, see, you, you touched you touched something that threatened him there because he's been to the gym doing all the exercises, right? <laughs> <laughs> he's a guy yeah. doing weird stuff with everything. Yeah, I <laughs> like working that. out around him. Yes, you have to. I won't say that that's balance. You have to make sure that you have the strength to be able to do the impactful things, right? Sure, so, so setting yourself up to have the strength to do the things that matter the most is an important part of finding what's essential. I like that. I can settle with that. All right. Final question, because this one really is important to both Lisa and I. For lack of a better word, we both have someone in our life on a regular basis that is lead, leads us down the path of constant fuckery. And in the, in the form of triggers and you talked about triggers and how there are people that come into our lives and it's the ones that are the most maddening to us that often end up teaching us the greatest lessons that we need to learn. How can we as humans properly address those triggers, those maddening people in our lives that come and go that know exactly, I call them energy vampires that know exactly where to cut us, to trigger us to really just rub us the wrong way. And no matter what happens, you can sit there and put your robe on all you want. All you want to do is just scream and kick and attack like the lion. How can we better manage our reactions to that? And how can we most reorient our perspective so when we have these triggers that occur, we can see that for the lesson that there is possibly to be learned from that? Yeah, that's a great question. Because all of that sounds great in theory, but man... Have you ever been? Have you ever dealt with an ex before? There are times when you. Oh, let's get really specific. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, <laughs> I just wanted like scream. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? Because right. it sounds great on paper, and you know, I listen. I read the Tao Te Ching and Wayne Dyer every single morning, and I read the Twenty Seven Principles of Compassion and and all the different pieces. But I tell you what, there are some times when it just seems downright impossible. So give me some advice on that. Yeah, I mean, the first, it, it's not. Um, it's not impossible or not unconscionable to cut those people out of your life. Like that's a fine piece. So I wanted to just say, and it sounds like that's not possible for you right now, but I want to, I want to preface what I'm about to say with, I never want anybody to stay in any kind of situation where it's like, feels completely overwhelming. And it's just like endlessly frustrating. They're like pulling out their hair. So you can always kind of cut and run. That's the preface there. And then the second piece is, I mean, in a lot of ways there, I'm thinking of what's coming to my mind is there's a, there's a Buddhist prayer where you literally pray for an enemy. You pray to have somebody that will push your butt, that really, not just like somebody that annoys you, somebody that is actively trying to harm you. And the reason that you pray for that, I pray for an enemy is because in you dealing with somebody that's actively trying to harm you in some way, there's somebody that wishes you ill. It's literally the, the best kind of spiritual training because you learn tolerance, you learn patience, you learn skillfulness, you learn mindfulness, you learn everything in that. And it's very similar to, uh, we were just talking about weightlifting, right? When you go to the gym, you don't get pissed off at the weights for being heavy, right? So when you're dealing with this person, don't get pissed off at them for being annoying and frustrating and all of that. That's totally, it's not, it's not a helpful attitude, number one, even though it's natural. Because they're the ones that are teaching you something. So it's like, it's the very nature of the weight. The heaviness of the weight is what teaches you the thing that you need to learn. The annoyance of the frustration that comes from this interaction with this person is the very thing that you should feel most um, grateful for. 
because that's the thing that's generating these positive qualities within you. So what I would say is twofold. One, go into that. When you talk to that person, if you know you're going to talk to them, set your mindset in that. Be like, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to the gym. I'm going to my spiritual gym, going to my psychological gym right now. And I get to work out all these principles from the Dow, from Wayne Dyer, from Nick, whatever, wherever I pick them up. And I'm going to like try this out and I may fail and I may go to go all the way to failure, but I'm still getting this chance to go to this cool gym that this person set up for me. I love the spin that you did on that, that the, it's the opportunity for growth. It's also the opportunity for you to feel a little bit better about yourself than about them. I'm better than you because I know <laughs> taking the ego out of it. But honestly, some of these things that, that you, um, procrastinate having the activity with that person or whatever you avoid it, or you've, you've had, you know, less than positive interactions have been the things that have caused the most growth and allowed you to be able to be empathetic to other people and talk about, Hey, you know, if you're in this situation, you can do this, this, and this, there's a, you know, you'll get to the other side. You can have a more of a positive spin that you would never have had that mindset or, or experience to be able to share that as well. Yeah. You, you just don't, you know, exactly. You, yeah. You, I'm reminded of the saying, um, I think it's calm seas don't make great sailors. Right. You want you want to have that that kind of difficulty to be able to get past. Now, don't I mean I've been practicing this stuff for decades and there are still times where I find myself subconsciously or even consciously avoiding difficult people or situations just because I, I don't yet I don't feel like I have the resources to be able to deal with it. Right. So sometimes if you're in like a weakened state, and that's where like a daily practice, some kind of thing that you're doing all the time, if you're in a weakened state, hungry state, upset state, tired state, it's going to be that much harder. So set yourself up for success and think about when is the most skillful time to, to interact with that person. That's helpful. Can you give us, before we drop you off this, and I appreciate all the time you've given us today. It's been some fantastic morsels you've dropped. Meditation. It, it, it's something that uh, I practice and have been for five or six years. But even in that space, I don't know that I've ever fully grasped how it is, what it is, why it is I'm supposed to be doing. And in, yeah. in, in a quick encapsulation, can you give us some tips on that? That's literally my favorite question, Devo. Any, so meditation, there's so much information on meditation, right? And I'm just, I love it because I can just boil it down really simply. Meditation on mantras, meditation on breathing, meditation on visualization, on energy. Like there's infinite different objects of the mind, objects of awareness that you can have for meditation. Meditation, 99% of what, it, what meditation is, is simply being aware of something, holding your, your focus on something, and then your mind goes off and then bringing it back. So noticing, so if you're meditating on your breathing, focusing on your breathing, noticing when you're off in ideation, off caught in your stories, and then bringing it back. And what it does, any, no matter what your object of meditation is, is it trains your mind to kind of rest and focus on whatever it is that you're putting, putting your attention towards. That's it. That's all meditation is. Actually, meditation is not even particularly spiritual. It, it it literally is a kind of exercise for the mind. And then what the Buddhist monks and Hindu people did, everybody, is they then apply that power of the mind to spiritual realizations. And so what it does is it stabilizes a kind of realization. So let me time out and go back for a second. So one of the things that I struggle with most when I'm in meditation is the distractive thoughts, the, the, the monkey mind, if you will. And, and my mind starts going off into these, these categories of ideas and I can never shut my mind down. It's like constantly thinking about every 
possible scenario, how things might play out, projected outcomes, you name it. The day before me, my kids, whatever. That vampire we were talking about earlier. How can I... So you're saying that when those thoughts pop into my head, I want to acknowledge those thoughts for what they are, their thoughts, but then I want to go back to where? Where am I going back to? No, no. What, okay, so when you sit down to meditate, what are you meditating on? If I'm not. I'm just, were- I'm just trying to listen. What I typically do is I'll, I, I sit out in my yard. I have a fountain, and I like to listen to the birds, and I like to listen to the water, and I try to... I try to follow the cadence of my breath. But what in, what inherently happens is a chipmunk will run across my path. I'm like, ooh, chipmunk, and I'll go chase the chipmunk down. Yeah. So that's so one thing is your object of awareness is not clear, right? And it's okay to use – you can actually use sound and you can use – that's a, a certain kind of meditation. Use whatever is coming up in terms of your experience. But for you, your object of meditation is not clear. So you, you don't have, so let's say you're focusing on your breath. I want you to really focus on your breath. I want there to be, I want you to be so absorbed. I want you to be in a flow state with your breath and be in a total flow state of your breath where there's no, there's only the breathing that's happening in the moment. And then those thoughts arise and you're going to get caught up in those stories. They're all just like awesome fantasies. All the fantasies, they're either about like shit going really wrong or stuff going like super right. Right. Those are the ones that like hit us. And it's like, oh, I get caught in that. And then I want you to go back to the object of of your breath. Right. And the reason. So I think I've taught even in some of our classes together, we've talked about different kinds of meditation. It's tricky because the breath is actually pretty neutral. Right. So the breath isn't isn't that compelling. It's a really good, good object of awareness for beginners. But at the same time, it's not it's hard to bring your mind back. So it takes quite a bit of effort to bring it back to to the breath, which is why there are these various kinds of meditations that elicit a kind of blissful feeling in the body. A hell of a lot easier to stay focused with blissfulness. Right. Super hard to be like, hey, Debo, I want you to be completely focused on your like ham sandwich that you eat every day. Right. Versus like, hey, Diva, we're going to go to this Michelin starred restaurant and I want you to be totally focused on the meal in front of you. Right. Those are two two qualitatively different phenomena. It's still you can but you can bring your mind to whatever it is. Right. So that's all meditation is. And then if you want to bring like a spiritual aspect to it, it just allows you to be able to respond differently. And then once you have a kind of um, any kind of spiritual insight, whatever that is, it could even just be faith. We were talking about Christianity earlier. Like I have a, a Christian kind of faith. Imagine being so um, such a powerful mind that you you can really rest in that faith, in that love of God, or however you want to talk about it. God as the universe, or if it's a Buddhist sense, like the interdependence, or you know, all of compassion, something like that, and being able to stabilize it. That's what meditation is about. It's just a tool. I wonder if we could do a, a guided meditation once with you. I'd like to. I'd like to see how you your your take on it. Not today, but another yeah, time. Absolutely. I didn't get to in your last class when you were with a couple of those people. I, I remember I had to drop when you started the meditation, so I didn't get to do it because I was you were driving. driving. You were driving. You should not have been meditating as you were driving. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of a kind of Tibetan meditation called vase breathing, which is basically just it takes a little bit of practice because you have to breathe, you know, kind of in a yogic style, and then you gently hold the breath, and then you kind of pull up. And when we, I'd be happy to do one. We could do one live, not now, but in the future. And what it does is it creates an actual physical sense of well being. And there's all kinds of science behind it, the vagus nerve and all of this stuff. Um, but what it does is it makes it a hell of a lot easier for you to stay present, right? And the example I always give people is like, look, it's so much easier to stay present during a pleasurable experience like sex or eating your favorite food or whatever it is than just something like neutral run of the mill. And so then you really learn what it means to like solidify your mind state. 
And from there, all kinds of positive things can arise. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Lise, any final questions or thoughts? No, this was so, so engaging and so positive. Thank you so much. We have a lot to work. We have a lot to work on. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are really fun. I would love to do it again sometime. It was great. So and Nick, send me, I, send me your address. I want to get that uh, a book out to. No, I'll st- I'll steal Devo's. I'll steal it. He's okay, he's yeah. highlighted it all, so you know. You know all the parts. He'll just yeah. teach it. I do want more of your books because I like to give it as a gift, but then right. I don't get to buy it for you and add to your Amazon score. So <laughs> thank you. So our guest today has been Nick Egan. Thank you, Lisa, for your time. Nick, thank you for your time. You can find him below the scroller ticker, Nick eganphd.com. I like how you threw that PhD in there. You know, a funny story when I was trying to set your uh, ticker up before the show, I had to write PhD like seven times. I didn't know the syntax of it. Capital P, little H, big D. I kept messing it up. I had to keep going back. That doesn't look right. So anyhow, yeah, like you got it. You got it. All right. I appreciate your time, man. It's been a good, uh, it's been a really good show. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. And keep doing amazing work. Just love following everything that you're doing. All right, I appreciate that. So, Lise, we're going to stay and do a small recap. Nick, I'm going to kick you out of the studio. You go back to the green room or do whatever you do, or you can just drop. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye. I know you still have a long list of questions, but, you know, we had to cut it off at what? Oh, my gosh, an hour? We technically only went exactly one hour. So Mm. maybe we can do a part one and a part two this time with it because there was so much. So what did you think of that show? Fabulous. Yeah. Could be, really... could be my favorite, but I know we're not supposed to have like favorites, like favorite kids, but yeah. All right. So that was Nick Egan. Thank you for joining. If you love this show and you like the, the guests that we bring on, this is our shameless plug. We're Devo and Lisa. We run the Mind Body Business podcast. We are in our 50th episode, by the way. If you like this show and you see it pop up on YouTube, we would really encourage you to like it drop some comments below because that helps us continue to propagate it higher and higher into the YouTube algorithm so that we can stay relevant and ultimately become famous someday because that's, we all, we all care. Or we could propagate it with like a million ads in the middle of it. (laughs) Did you like that that. shameless plug I did for ExpressVPN? Yeah, but. Doesn't get us any value. (laughs) (laughs) We got to aim higher. If we got to find our flow this- state. We got to find our flow state for that. If you want to pick up Nick's book and you know, I'm an avid reader. I read a lot of books. Nick's book has been one of my favorite books this year. So much that I've now read it three times. And if you were to scroll through my book, you'll see how many times that I have dog-eared and, and underlined certain things just because there's so much value to it. Uh, it's been a good show. Always a pleasure to be on the, on the air with you and we'll see you all let me see you next. Welcome to the Mind Body Business Podcast. Have you ever considered your superpower? If you had one gift to leave with humanity, what would that be? We believe that everyone possesses a superpower. This is your value proposition, your je ne sais quoi to help make a tangible difference in the world. Each week, our show explores these superpowers with tantalizing thoughts germinating only from the power of collective thought. We invite you to join us for one hour each week and listen in as we dispense superpower knowledge from great people doing greater things.